if you are honest, there have been moments and seasons in your life when you have been attacked or had adversity. If you have not been attacked or had adversity, you are a hermit and uh, have no contact with any other people. These are the realities of living in a world with other people. And if you're honest, and if you live long enough, you will discover that you will hold degrees from multiple universities. You will hold a degree from the School of Pruning because it is by pruning that God makes us to be more fruitful in our lives. You'll go to the School of Hard Knocks where people question your motives. You will go to the School of Impossible People that no matter what you do, you can't make them happy. Even Jesus can't make them happy. Jesus and winning the lottery couldn't make them happy. You'll go to the school of disloyalty. If you're a leader, you will always have some point in your life where people will either be disloyal, untrustworthy, or not be able to keep a confidence. These difficulties are going to make you bitter or they're going to make you better. It's going to determine what kind of leader you can be, what talent God can entrust to you to come and check later on to see what you've done with what he's invested in your life. There's a school of criticism. If you're going to be a leader in any level, you're going to be criticized. It just goes with the game. You see, if you're not big enough to stand criticism, you are too small to be praised. If you are not big enough to stand criticism, you are too small to be praised. Usually when people kick you, it's because you're out in front of them. Hard to kick you when they're behind. The school of misunderstood motives. Somebody questioning what you do and why you do it. And people who know better but never know all the facts about you or your family or your job, whatever it is. Charles Lowry said, anyone called to lead a pack must always be prepared for arrows in the back. The school of adversity, trials, tests, tribulations, pressure. William Cox said, the scriptures show conclusively that tribulation is a natural byproduct of genuine Christianity. Paul had degrees in every one of these. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians today, and Paul had degrees in every one of these. He had a degree in the school of pruning. He had the thorn in the flesh to keep him from exalting himself. He had a degree in the school of hard decisions. John Mark could not go on a second journey, and it caused a split between Paul and Barnabas. He had a, the school of impossible people. He was always dealing with the Gnostics and the Judaizers and people dogging his path. The school of disloyalty, Demas forsook him, having loved this present world. The school of criticism inside and outside the church. The school of misunderstood motives. The Corinthians were always questioning Paul and what he did and why he did it. The school of adversity, trials and tribulations and shipwrecks and beatings and left for dead. You see, we whine about first world problems. Paul had real world problems. So sometimes we think adversity is if we get a hangnail. 
That's not what adversity is. Adversity is when everything you believe and everything you put your energy into is tested or pushed back on. The first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul is going point by point dealing with what these Corinthians have been saying about him in his absence. In verses 10 through 13, he hits it head on. Why? Because he's defending the gospel. He's defending the unity of the church. He's trying to say, look, this is bigger than me and it's bigger than you, but I'm going to deal with the complaints that you're having. So let's look at four poor responses to adversity. I would not advise any of these. Number one, avoidance. Avoidance. Just hiding your head in the sand, just pretending that you're not in an adverse situation, just thinking that the next place or the next family or the next job or the next town is going to be better. Listen, the devil lives everywhere. You can't run from him. So avoidance is not a good answer. Blame. Blame. Oh, if it wasn't for them, if it wasn't for him, if it wasn't for her, if it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for that situation or that place, I could be spiritual. That's the blame game. It doesn't work. Passing the buck. Someone should do something. Now, I'm personally not going to do anything. But someone should do something. You ever, you ever hear this? This is the line that I cringe the most at. Well, that's not in my job description. Well, then get another job. That's why in our, on our staff, you will see that it says, and other duties as assigned by the pastor. It means it may not fit the specific title of what you do, but if we need it done by the love of Jesus, we're going to get it done. That's not my job description. Listen, that's why some of you can't get a job. Because you want a job description that you write. Rather than a job description that somebody else writes, you've got to live up to it. Passing the buck. Fourthly, whining. Oh, my goodness. We could spend all day here. I mean, just go to the Waffle House and listen to it. Whining, whining, whining. Whining, complaining. Moaning and complaining. Oh, just whine it. Listen, that is never going to fix an attack or adversity. Right. Whining about your problems doesn't fix them. So, what are the five reasons for adversity? It's a good thing to look at. Number one is a lack of planning. A lack of planning. A lot of problems and a lot of attacks and a lot of adversity, quite honestly, come because people just fly by the seat of their pants. They do things at the last minute. They don't pay attention to details. And then they, they wonder why they're in trouble or why they don't get a good job review. Because there's a lack of planning. There's a lack of thinking ahead. How does this affect this? How does this look in the big picture? Proverbs 27, 12. A sensible man watches for problems and prepares for them. The fool never looks ahead and suffers the consequences. Second reason, pride. Pride. We aren't teachable. We aren't open. We don't, we're not willing to make adjustments. We don't listen to input. Proverbs 18, 12. Pride leads to destruction and arrogance to a downfall. The fear of man. One of the reasons that we have adversity is because we don't, as Barney Fife would say, nip it in the bud at the beginning because of the fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man is a dangerous trap. 
But to trust in God gives safety. Another reason is fleshly reactions. We build ourselves up by tearing other people down. That's a fleshly reaction. You know, it doesn't make you a better person by criticizing somebody else or by tearing somebody else down. But then there's a fifth one that I want you to understand, and that is that God allows adversity to prune us. God allows it to prune us. Hey, if every sea was smooth, anybody could captain a boat. But it's the guy who knows how to handle the rough sea that is the guy you want at the helm. So God allows the pruning, 2 Corinthians 1 and verses 1 through 11. I want you to just look here just quickly at 2 Corinthians 1. Paul says in this chapter, as he's beginning to write this letter, that he is burdened excessively. He is beyond his strength so that he has despaired even of life. Now, we do not know what was going on here, but the Corinthians did. This is something that was kind of, they knew and he knew, we don't know, but they knew exactly what he was talking about that had led him to this point. And look at what he says, burdened excessively means he was pressed out of measure, pressed out of shape. I mean, he was thrown a curve that he wasn't expecting. Beyond our strength, weighted down. It was more than he could handle. Here's a man who's facing adversity. It's more than he can handle. Despaired even of life. He, he couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And the sentence of death, it seemed to him the only answer to his problem was to die. That's the only way to get it fixed. It seemed to Paul that the best thing that can happen to me right now is I just die and go be with Jesus. But then maybe he remembered what Jesus said when Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, Jesus mentions three things, insults. And you're never able to defend yourself against an insult. You might as well not even try. You cannot defend yourself against an insult. So just know that that's reality, and that's just what mean people do. Secondly, persecution, invasion of your life, your rights, your safety, your, your comfort zone, your personal space. I mean, people are getting in your grill. And Jesus talked about when you're spoken against and with evilly, falsely. But look at what he says, blessed are you, and then he goes on to say, and great is your reward in heaven. Are you kidding me? I was hoping for a reward without any problems. I mean, I've, I've been, you know, looking at those TV preachers, and they tell me if I send them $20 a month, I won't ever have any problems anymore. Well, the problem is they never read the Gospels. You know what the study Bible of the average TV preacher is? It's a blank journal. They got nothing to say that's consistent with the Word of God. And so here's Jesus is saying, if you want to be blessed, and if you want to have a great reward, watch how you deal with adversity and with problems. See how you react. So let's look at Paul. He's facing this adversity head on. Now here's, here's the background of, of what they're trying to do. They are trying to discredit the Apostle Paul. 
Here are these Corinthians, many of them own their own salvation to the Apostle Paul, and they're trying to discredit him, and they're questioning his abilities. Uh, you see a quote in there uh, from Ronald Heitzitz, and he says, people who lead frequently bear scars from their efforts to bring about adaptive change. If you're going to lead, you're going to be changing some things, and if you're changing some things, you're always going to be criticized. That just goes with the game. So Paul comes in chapters 10 through 13 of 2 Corinthians. His credibility is being questioned. He's not in Corinth. And so people are going face to face and door to door and criticizing him and questioning even his apostleship, saying you're not really one of the real apostles because you aren't in the 12 and you're not near as sharp as you think you are. And what they're doing is they're labeling Paul as a fraud. They're saying Paul is not really who he says he is. Now, here's what you need to understand about adversity in leaders. Leaders don't run from adversity. They run to the battle. They don't run from adversity. They run to the battle. Cowards run. People that are AWOL run. Leaders don't run from the battle. The truth is worth fighting for. And so, if you'll let me paraphrase what Paul is, is saying to them Paul is saying, don't, you don't count me out. This is not my first rodeo, and you're not the first people to criticize me, and I'm here for the duration. That's what Paul's saying. And I, I'm about to come see you, and there is a holy anger in Paul. Now, listen to me. There's a difference between being ticked off and having a holy anger. It's a fine line. You know, the scripture says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. It's a fine line between just being ticked off and mad and having a, a holy anger. Look in your notes at the quote by J. Oswald Smith from Spiritual Leadership. By the way, the greatest book on leadership I've ever read. Righteous wrath is no less noble than love since both coexist in God. Each necessitates... I covered up my notes. Let me go on. The other, it was Jesus' love for the man with a withered hand that aroused his anger against those who would deny him healing. Great leaders who have turned the tide in days of national, national and spiritual declension have been men who could get angry at the injustices and abuses which dishonored God and enslaved men. So look at 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. Paul is dealing with people inside the church who are wolves in sheep's clothing. We've been warned about that. Jesus warned about it. The book of Acts warns us about it. Paul had warned them. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1, now this is their thinking, and he's addressing their thinking. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ... I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. That's what they were saying about him. So he's just repeating what he's heard. By the way, look this way. You never tell anything anybody, to anybody, criticizing anybody, that doesn't get back to them. Paul is not even in the same town. He knows exactly everything they're saying about him. So if you want to criticize somebody, just know this. When you say, hey, you know, I just want to tell you what I really feel about this, it's going to get back to them. It's going to get back to them. You know, because there are listening ears everywhere. It's going to get back to them. They're going to find out. So Paul says, hey, guess what, boys and girls? 
I know what you've been saying about me. This is what you've been saying about me, that I'm meek when face to face, but bold towards you and absent. He's quoting what they have said about him. He's going, and guess what? Everybody in the church, when this letter is being read, all turned to look at the person that had said that. Because they all knew he'd said it because he'd been working the congregation. And so they all turned and looked at him and said, he caught you, didn't he? Paul's not even there. This letter is being read by somebody else. And he says, that's what you think about me. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. In other words, Paul is saying, you think that I'm fighting a battle on the same level you're fighting it on. You don't have any clue who I am. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Paul says, I'm not waging a fleshly war. I'm not going to get into commenting on your Facebook post. I'm not going to get into you just don't know all the facts on your Twitter account. I'm not going to get into, well, I know more than you know. I'm not going to, Paul says, I'm not going to fight your dumb war. What he says is what I'm going to fight with is truth, faith, prayer, and boldness in the gospel. That's what I'm going to fight with. I'm going to fight with what works, and that is the truth of God, faith in the Word of God, and the promises of God, praying to a God who can move mountain, and having the boldness that I need when whoever I face, whenever I face them, they're going to know I'm not fighting them in my flesh. I'm going to come to them in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, you, you think you would like to fight with me on a fleshly term, and I'm this frail man, and I'm bent over, and my eyesight's bad. You, you, think, you think you'd like to fight me, but when I come to you, I'm coming to you in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you boys aren't ready for that. That's just the cat South Georgia version of what Paul was saying. John MacArthur said, Paul knew what every good leader knows. Rebellion always sows seeds for more rebellion. See, although rebellion may go underground, it never goes away. The devil is always looking, as he was at the temptation of Christ, for a more opportune time. The devil is always looking for another opportunity. And so Paul knows there are these seeds of gossip and strife and slander, and they're bearing fruit. And Paul is letting these false teachers know that there's spiritual warfare coming that God has a way that he's going to deal with this, and he's going to address it, and his patience has been exhausted. Now look at these words from the NIV from 2 Corinthians 13. I already gave you a warning. When I was with you the second time, I now repeat it while absent. Look at what he says. Now this is inspired words put in by God through the power of the Holy Spirit, given to Paul to put in a letter that we would read 2,000 years later. So if you think people of God ought to be wimps, you have not read your Bible. This is what Paul says. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier and any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. In other words, what Paul is saying is this, just like with your children, disobedient church members are going to be dealt with. That's what he's saying. 
He's saying, you disobey the Word of God, you disobey the plan of God, you push against the gospel of God, and I'm going to deal with you when I get there. Paul is saying, nobody is going to push him around. Now, here's the number one problem that I see in pastors in America today is the fear of man. They're so afraid of deacon so-and-so and chairman committee so-and-so and this little group of people. You know why the average pastor leaves a group? They leave because of eight people, eight. They can be in a church of 80 or 8,000. They'll leave because eight people drive them crazy. What they need to do is read what Paul says in Corinthians and say, it's time for y'all to go because God called me to lead according to the Word of God. You know, sometimes churches have revival by back doors when people leave because they hinder. Listen, if you know somebody that's hindering your Sunday school class from growing that is hindering your Sunday school class for caring about lost people, you ought to invite them to go somewhere else. But not to church. You ought to invite them to go to the altar and repent of it. Paul says, when I come, I am not sparing anyone. You could go around this room, pick a section, and go in a row, say, anybody here know a church is fussing and fighting right now? And somebody would be able to name one. You know what? We don't have the structure in Baptist life. I wish we did, where somebody had the authority to go in and say, now, we're going to deal with this right now, and before the clock strikes 12, it's going to be over. That's what Paul's doing. Paul is saying, I'm not going to roll over and play dead in a moment of adversity. And we've got too many cowardly Christians who roll over and play dead anytime problems come into their lives. They don't stand up and speak out for Christ and what God is doing. They just roll over. And so Paul is dealing with him in the last four chapters. He's basically reiterating what he said in 1 Corinthians 4.21. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Man. Now listen. This is what I always knew as a kid. I didn't want my dad to come to me with a rod. I wanted my dad to come to me with a spirit of gentleness and love. But sometimes the rod was gentleness and love because he was protecting me from myself and from my fleshly desires to have life my way. You know, we, we have adversity. You know, somebody, you know, I remember one of our daughters used to come home from school and said, people are me are so mean. And Terry just say, toughen up. Hey, the world is mean, okay? Does everybody understand that? The world is mean. There are mean people everywhere. There are mean people in every organization, in every business, in every church. There are mean people in your neighborhood. There are mean people in the bed you sleep in. <laughs> They're just mean people. I mean, they got up on the wrong side of the bed the moment they came out of their mother's womb, they got up on the wrong side of the bed. They're just born mean. They're going to die mean. The, all the grass on top of their grave is going to turn yellow. I mean, it's just, they're just mean people. And you can either let them run your life or you can run past them. You have a choice. You have a choice whether you let the critics and the cynics and the attacks run you and ruin you or whether you wage war on a spiritual level, not tit for tat, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But while you're turning the other cheek and while you're going the second mile, you're still moving forward in your faith. 
What did Paul say to Timothy? He said, wage the good warfare. 1 Timothy 1.18, fight the good fight. 1 Timothy 6.12. In 2 Timothy, he said, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, here's, here's the summary statement. Adversity will either defeat you, direct you, or define you. Adversity will either defeat you, direct you, or define you. How you and I handle the troubles of life, when our family falls apart, when our kids fall apart, when we get criticized, or if you get dismissed from a job, if, if you lose your ability to lead, if somebody comes in that you don't like, whatever it is, it's either going to defeat you, direct you, or define you. We do not want our adversities to define us. They can make us more like Christ. You ever met these people? Can I tell you what happened to me in 1952? It was terrible. It was just terrible. It's 2017, I know, but it was terrible. I just, everybody I meet, I just got to tell them. I got to tell them, I said, hey, won't you play another somebody's done somebody wrong song? I mean, they always got to tell you what's going on, what's wrong. They got to go and say, well, did, did, did y'all, oh yeah, we got straightened out, but I want you to know my, I want you to hear about it. People that don't have any ability to fix it, to change it, to help in any way, it's long since done, and we're still bringing it up and still playing it as a pity card. That's when it defeats you. Or it can direct you to go to God. And the only way it needs to define you is it prunes off of you that which is not like Jesus so that when you respond to adversity, you respond more like Jesus and less like I'm ticked off and I just want to take the world on. So let me give you four or five ways to pray. First of all, ask God to direct you. Ask God to direct you. Don't tell God how it ought to work out. Ask God to direct you. God, how should I respond in this moment to this situation, to this person? Ask God to inspect you. God, what is it in me that you're trying to show me that doesn't need to be in me anymore? Ask God to inspect you. Where's the flaw? Where's the thing that, you see, if you don't ask God to inspect you, then you're not going to be teachable. And if you're not teachable with God, you're sure not going to be teachable with anybody else. If somebody can't say, yeah, that's okay, but I wouldn't do that. Ask God to inspect you. I, I remember a meeting when I was in, and I was wroth. <laughs> and John Dees said to me, he said, Michael, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I wouldn't do that if I were you. You know what? If I hadn't asked God to inspect me, then I wouldn't have listened to John Dees when he talked to me. And I didn't do it because one man said, I'll stand with you if that's what you want to do, but I wouldn't do it if I was you. Ask God to direct you. Ask God to inspect you. Ask God to correct you. To correct you. That's a word of repentance. Not just I'm sorry, but repentance. God, correct me. Get me back on the right path. Don't let me go off on this detour. Don't let me let my life be absorbed by this moment in my life. Let, ask God to, to correct you. Ask God to protect you. 
from yourself, from hearing some things that you don't need to hear, from seeing some things that you don't need to see. Ask God to protect you and ask God to perfect you. Ask God to use the adversity or the attack to make you more and more and more like Jesus. So that when life squeezes you, what comes out of you is more of Jesus. When life squeezes you, you're not saying, you know what, if he's going to yell at me, I'm going to yell at him. If he's going to cuss me, I'm going to cuss him. If he's going to write letters to me, I'm going to write letters to him. Don't do that. Don't do that. Say, you know what? God's going to perfect me, and in perfecting me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to wage the war in truth. Not everything I know has to be spoken. I'm going to wage the war in truth. I'm going to believe by faith that God has allowed this into my life. I'm going to pray that God gives me the opportunity to deal with this in the right way, that he perfects me. And I'm going to have boldness when I need to have boldness. And I'm going to be quiet when I need to be quiet. I'm going to stand when I need to stand. I'm going to sit when I need to sit. So, I want to ask you to stand up if you would. And I want to invite to the altar anyone that needs God to do any of those things in their lives. To direct you, to inspect you, to correct you, to protect you, to perfect you. You've got a weakness you're dealing with. You've got a problem you're dealing with. You've got a situation. There's a misunderstanding. You're in a battle in your family. You're in a battle in your business. You're in a battle in your finances. You're in a battle with people's opinions about you that have pulled you down and sucked the life out of you. You're in a battle with, with your feelings about other people and not knowing if you can have the Christian response to them or not. Or you're just seeking wisdom. Lord, I'm, I'm in the midst of some adverse situations. And I need wisdom from you. I need you to perfect me in this. I need you to bring me to yourself. I need you to make me more and more and more like Jesus. And as you come, would you just tell God, just honest to God, Lord, this is where I am. And what I want to do is what the world does. I want to fight back. I want to get even. I want to get my revenge. I, I want to make sure everybody knows my side. What I need to do is let you be.